Welcome to season eight of a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host. I've been living in Vietnam now since 2016 and I've been hosting this podcast since 2019. And I started because I wanted to share the stories of people that lived in Saigon and we've now grown to share stories from people connected to Vietnam all across the world. My guest today is a former trans activist, a writer and a 7 million bikes super fan. He is the only person in the world to have a 7 million bikes tattoo. Today, we're going to talk about his trans activism in the US and why he decided to leave life as a trans person in Vietnam and his memoirs that he is currently writing. My guest today is Zion Johnson. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Neil. I'm very excited to be here today. It's kind of a fantasy. I've been wanting to have that super fan episode pop up and here it is. <laughs> well, no, thank you. I mean, this is going to be the last episode of season eight. Uh, and you recently had your birthday as well. Yeah. And I thought, what a, what a perfect time to have you on the show. Thank you so much. So how did you get into 7 Million Bikes? Let's see. Back in 2019, I wasn't living in Saigon. I was living outside of Saigon in a city called Tuyamo. It's very lonely out there, Neil. <laughs> very lonely. And I, I'd been into, interested in podcasts for quite a long time. So once I found one that was directly related to Vietnam, I just jumped on it. And it's been super wonderful to hear all the interviews and actually meet some of the people that you have had on the show. Yeah, that's been it's really cool. We did a second birthday, which is nearly a year ago. We're coming up to the third birthday very, very shortly. And that was really cool, bringing together loads of the previous guests. And when a lot of them are comedians as well, and you're a big comedy fan too, so you've met lots of them through comedy as well, right? Yes, that's been uh, the, really, the really cool part about your podcast. To be able to witness them in their shows and to interact with them, all the people that I've met as far as 7 Million Bikes have been really great personalities and good people to get to know. So let's go back to, as I mentioned, so you said you're a former trans activist. So what did you do in terms of, in terms of trans activism and why are you a former trans activist? Okay, so for listeners, I identify as a transgendered male. So I have a female past. I've been transitioned for almost 20 years now, living as Zion. And... In the beginning, I was living in San Francisco, and during that time, we, we didn't have the same technology. We still met together in groups. We still got together and saw people face-to-face. -face. So when I was in San Francisco, I was part of an organization called Lou Sullivan Society. And this was started by a gentleman named Lou Sullivan who got other FTM individuals together through a newsletter. Eventually it grew into an actual group that would meet about once a month in San Francisco. And there we would exchange information about transition. We would be kind of a support system as far as like being friends, going out together, having some meals. And within that, we were able to create other friendships and, and build a network. So a lot of the trans activism I was doing was education. So going with other 
groups to maybe an institution, whether if it was like a high school or a college, maybe a junior college, and go and speak with students. So I've done quite a few panels speaking about my particular experience in transition, helping others as far as like questions that they might have about those who identify as transgender. I've met quite a few individuals who have done much more than I have as far as people of color, those who are in and who find themselves in the legal situations, come across people who are lawyers, come across people who are just advocates within the jail system for those who are transgender. Wow. That's uh, crazy. You're saying 20 years ago, it's seems not that long ago, but it also seems so long ago at the same time. Yeah, a lot of groundwork has been, you know, being laid in place. It hasn't necessarily lessened the struggle that transgender people have in the United States or even across the world. It just means that we're more visible now and people are becoming more aware of health issues and social issues that trans people face on it. And so do you want to talk a little bit about your journey through growing up, how, how you came to realize, you know, this wasn't me, that I wanted to transition? Sure. Knew quite early. I knew. I can remember talking to my father when I was five years old about wanting to be a boy. I remember being taken to like a daycare center and trying to play off being a boy, but at that time cornrows and braids, it wasn't shared by both genders. Little boys had short cropped hair. Girls are the ones that had braids and barrettes. So I definitely did not look like a little boy growing up, but I definitely felt like a little boy growing up. Eventually what ended up happening is I did come out as a lesbian because not only did I feel male, I also was attracted, still am attracted to, to females. So that's where I find myself within the LGBT community in the beginning. But nothing really settled within that. I think, you know, there was a time looking back, it's like I am, quote unquote, a woman, but I don't think like a woman. Um, Missing a lot of connections with my partners and other friends because there's this, some, this assumption that we are the same gender, which, you know, come to find out, I wasn't. Further on in my journey, I had met a couple of trans men, but I didn't necessarily see that as my road to take. It wasn't much later until I found myself with a group of men and we're relaxing. I was with a group of gay men. We started having this conversation because they were fascinated with how comfortable they felt with me being a lesbian. I was feeling extremely comfortable with them. And I think that's when the light bulb came up. It's like, well, I'm so comfortable. It's because I am like them. I do identify as male. And then all the pieces started to fall into place when I- Was that then like a kind of big relief at that point of like kind of knowing? Yeah, so once you know, then You don't necessarily know where to go from there, but at least you have some sense of yourself, whereas before it was really hard to have a sense of yourself. Yeah. And right now, 
in the US, it's just crazy. Like, we can move, kind of talk then, I guess. Like, so why did you leave the US? Because I guess you're from Texas, not known to be the most liberal state. But there are liberal places in Texas. I know that. It's not like a monolith. What influenced then your decision to leave the US? Was it because of what's going on in the US or what's going on in the US? Or, or where did that decision come from? That's always such a huge question for me. And I get it a lot from Vietnamese people and from other foreigners. So I am from Texas originally, but a lot of my growing up did happen on the West Coast in California. Mm. And I came out while living in San Francisco, this wonderful bubble of acceptance and diversity and queerness that's just really vibrant. It's a tiny bubble. There's, there's a lot acting upon that bubble, but definitely a place that was much more safe, much more open for me to come out and and then start to express my, my, my masculinity. Texas is an interesting place, as yes, as a state, it is very conservative, but there are small pockets that continue to hold on to sense of logic and... Mm -hmm. There are people who are concerned about the well-being of others and do do good work to help, you know, keep those people safe and making sure that they're able to live a life that everyone should be deserving to live, mm. free and open, being able to express themselves, however. And I was just reading this morning and the reference I'm kind of alluding to when I'm saying things in the US right now, I'm specifically really talking about in Florida, which Florida is its own planet, right? Like we shouldn't count Florida as part of the US. It's a di I've never been, but it from what I read about it, it's just a different world. And so the, what I'm referencing is what's known as the, the don't say gay bill that they're, they're enacted, well, they've enacted, right? I read today, one of the proponents of it claimed, well, it's more of a anti-grooming bill they're somehow equating talking about gender with stopping children being groomed. And also referencing, you know, they, they, you maybe know about how they've now enacted against Disney and they're, they're taking on Disney for being too woke for, you know, accepting the LGBTQ community, which they have done for many years. I was reading about today, so it's nothing new. I don't understand, and I don't have a real question for this, but you can talk on it. I don't understand why they care. Like, why do you care? Like, just let people be happy. Let people be free. Let people do what they want to do. And it's always this thing about, and even with the abortion issues right now in America, Roe versus Wade, it's always about, oh, we've got to protect the children. But they don't give a fuck about the children, like, in any real sense. It's literally like their culture was, their ideology that they portray in this, like, higher than, holier than thou way of, like, we want to protect the child. And again, so this culture war against transgender people or LGBTQ people, there's no, they always couch it in the terms of we're trying to protect children, but there's no danger to children. And this whole thing about, you know, oh, we, we don't want to indoctrinate children. And I read something, I think it was a mutual friend of ours, Chelsea Gallagher posted that I saw, was like, we indoctrinate children from the moment they're born, where the boys are dressed in blue, they play with guns, girls are dressed in pink, they play with dolls. Like We do that. I hadn't really thought about it. I know it's true, but I hadn't ever really thought about it. 
we indoctrinate them already to what we think they should be. And I guess you're, you would have un, you're under, you're talking about how you understood that because you were essentially indoctrinated to be a female when you're like, well, I'm not a female, <laughs> you know? So as I said, when I started off on that monologue there, I don't really have a question on that, but what are your thoughts on the current state, I guess, in the US? And that my main point there is why the fuck can't they just let people be? I mean, that's a really good question. And I ask that question <laughs> all the time. It's, it's, it's a lack of education. It's, I think there's an unwillingness to realize that your own worldview is different from someone else's. To have a conversation with an American and be like, well, there's just really systematic racism that needs to be fought. And that person is like, I don't know what you're talking about. Therefore, it just doesn't exist. And it's because it doesn't apply to them, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not there. And I'm not quite sure what that would mean for that person to, to accept that someone else's existence in the United States is not as great as theirs for whatever reason. It's really hard for them to take. I don't know. I don't know what happens to a person when their worldview is this kind of. There's a chink in it, for for someone to have an idea that, you know, this person has a mustache, but yet they want me to call them her. Who cares, you know? Why I don't understand why that should matter, and that. Quite frankly, there are a lot of women who have mustaches. So give them the respect that they deserve and call them by the, you know, by their pronoun that they've chosen to to use. You know, when we're looking at something and it doesn't necessarily reflect our ideas or what we have imagined on it, people are just really stubborn about changing that perception just a little bit. You know, sometimes I have come out as trans and then it's confusing because, yes, I am male. There's no doubt about it. So then people are like, it, you can kind of see the, the switch flick on and off in their head. And they're just like, but you would make an ugly woman. I was like, yes, that's why I became a man. Someone said that to you. Yes. <laughs> and, and the the... You know, I think that people think trans, they are thinking men who want to be women. They're not considering that there's a woman who has been trapped in that body and has very masculine ideology tendencies that they want to express. People are, well, they're just a lesbian. They, 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 they're not able to take that step a little bit further. It's really interesting, you know, during my particular journey, I have facial hair, I have a deeper voice, but in the beginning, I would go shopping in San Francisco and then I would get that she. I'd be like, wow, do they know? These people psychic, what are, what's going on? And I think some people do kind of have like transdar, kind of like gaydar, where they do notice that there's something shifting within a person. They might not know how, why that's happening, but then they take it to the point where like, ah, but you're not supposed to know that or acknowledge it because obviously I'm trying to present in a certain way. The, the individuals who 
are, you know, they always mention this woke movement. Everybody's using the word wrong. Because if you were woke, you would have a better understanding of one, how to use the word, another appropriation from black people that you just destroyed. <laughs> and you would be willing to accept another person's existence. If you were so, if people were so woke, they wouldn't be forcing certain ideas on people. And I think that those people who are claiming there's a woke movement, they're just being challenged. They're, they're having to face different ideas that, that are right in front of them. They're not being told anymore. That trans person is saying, this is who I am. And, and it's, it's making their minds blow up just to, to physically see them. It's one thing to read about trans people and like demonize them and let's create laws where they can't use the bathroom of their chosen gender because all of these weird things happen in bathrooms. No, weird things don't happen in bathrooms. Poop and pee. That's what happens in bathrooms. So when, you know, there's legislation to, you know, don't say gay and let's decide, you know, let's decide this masculine looking person is going to use a female bathroom because on their birth certificate, it says they're female. Like what's happening? No one's really thinking these things through. I think if we know one thing, human beings, we're all just fucked anyway, right? So it's, we're just arguing, we're just, it's, they're all, we're all mental and there's so many mental people and this whole thing, I don't know, I look at the world so many times and I just don't get it. I'm like, what is going on? The whole bathroom thing, again, I don't get it. Why do we even have separate bathrooms? Can we not just have bathrooms for everyone? Which, which do exist, there are co-ed bathrooms and you just go in a stall and you use the bathroom, what does it matter? I don't get it. Quickly aside, funny story, this is not related to trans people, but it's related to bathrooms. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a, a restaurant, Tauri Inn, party going on, really fun night. They only have two bathrooms in the back. One has a female sign on it, one has a male sign on it. The bathrooms are identical, exact same. So the female one was empty, the male one was being used. I went in and used the female bathroom. I came out, there was a Vietnamese woman there. You should have seen the look on her face. She still daggers at me. She looked at the sign with the woman on it. She looked at me. And I just like was like, sorry, and walked away. And then my Vietnamese friend, she was behind her. And when she finished in the bathroom, she came back. And I was like, that woman was angry at me, right? She's like, yeah, she turned to me in Vietnamese. And she started ranting about, why were you using that bathroom? And I just like, so in her mind, again, not, there's nothing related to trans people. But in her mind, when it comes to bathrooms, I should have waited for the one with a male sign on it, and I'm not allowed to use the empty female one when they're the exact same. I have a funny story also <laughs> <Go on. laughs> of uh, a recent road trip that I had taken. I stopped at one of those big bus stop restaurants. It's where the buses come in, everyone unloads, they'll have their lunch. And typically the bathroom for the men is just a trough or the ground, and it's open. And... I don't use bathrooms like that. So it is about timing as far as like going there. You, I make sure there are no females waiting. They, they, they are the first priority when it comes to going into the bathroom. But if there's one empty and there's no one around, I'm going to jump in there and, and do my business. Because 
it'll be more comfortable for me. Luckily, I haven't had anyone get upset. But if the if the bathrooms are identical, I don't I don't see what the problem is. Of course, it would be different if you went into uh, the women's restroom and there were a collection of stalls for the women. Like more than one woman can go in there at a time. I would say, don't do that, Neil. Don't go in there at that time. But if it's just a single toilet, single toilet, I'd be like, I just hope you put the seat back down. And I have been trained from a young age from living with my mom and my sister to put the toilet seat down. And I remember, (laughs) that's funny you mentioned that. I remember at a young age, I don't know how young, and just always been told by my mom, like, put the toilet seat down when you're finished. And I'm like, why? Like, you, you put it down. Like, why do I have to put it down? Eventually, I just gave in. And do you know what I did? I put a bit of blue tack on the wall in front of the toilet. And that was my reminder to put the toilet seat down because I just would forget. Uh-huh. And I'd look at the blue tack and I'd be like, oh, yeah, put the toilet seat down. So I, I have maintained that habit throughout my life as well. Yeah, got to put the toilet seat down. And now I realize that it is quite disgusting to leave it up. Yeah. But so then well, let's move forward. So what then we can, I think I asked and we kind of went on a sidetrack. Actually, I do want to go back. Sorry, one, one second. I want to go back. I think one of the things we're missing and I often overlook it is religion. It's how much religion plays into this because I think most non-religious secular people are probably similar thinking to what we're talking about. They just don't give a fuck. They're just like, yeah, do, do what makes you happy. It's fine. We're talking about Florida, we're talking about Texas, we're talking about these places in the US. It's this Christian fundamentalism that is really driving this that I think, I forget how religious America is, to be honest. I don't know necessarily if America is religious. I think the religious people in America are very vocal. And I think they might have have a feeling that they've been shut out of things. Not that, you know, America was always had the sanctity of purity. There's been always something rotten going on in that country. So when it comes to religion, I would say probably Southern Baptist in particular, also kind of connected with white nationalism, other white supremacist groups, they are, they are missing exactly what they never had. And it's, it's something that is being, it's something that the rest of the country is starting to learn that not everyone's history is really the true history. And now the South is really working on trying to maintain this notion that they've had as far as like the purity of of America, what exactly American values are supposed to be. And, you know, the biggest mistake they ever did was to to bring slaves. The biggest mistake they ever did was to open up, you know, the country to to settle out further further west. And all of these different groups that ended up being in America, they started to settle everywhere. But when people only have a view of where they are, they have no idea of what's happening in the rest of the country. So for when people are talking about American ideals and what it stands for, it's something that they've never allowed themselves to see what happens 
with a country that continues to grow. They're really stuck in the 50s. They're stuck on something with, you know, a nice yard, white picket fence. The father is doing this. The mother is going to be staying at home and just popping out babies kind of thing. That's that's a wonderful thing to hold on to for a certain group of people, regardless of the fact that all of these other people exist in the United States. I had an interesting kind of back and forth on on Facebook, of course, of appropriation and talking about, I mean, we can talk about food in America. We have all these different types. We have Mexican food, there's Japanese food, there are all these different foods that are available, but they've all been kind of whitewashed that students visiting the United States are like, this is not Japanese food. This is not this. This is not that. I'm like, yeah, it's Americanized. You're just not going to get what you have from your country into America because everything is is changed for the American palate, which is really bland, to be honest. It's very it's very bland, and that's just kind of like how America does. We're going to take a little bit from someone else's culture, and we're going to take out the spice, make it palatable for us. But that just limits the understanding, you know, the, all that spice that belongs with culture, what makes other people so fantastic that does contribute to the United States. Most Americans aren't willing to go that far to learn what that is. So, you know, a lot of times there are the arguments of, well, that's that's cultural appropriation. It is because you're using it in a way that doesn't acknowledge where it comes from. It doesn't acknowledge the uniqueness. You've taken all the spice out of it. And quite frankly, we just don't like you with it. Now, you mentioned that woke had been appropriated, and I hadn't heard that before. Can you explain more about that? Woke is more black vernacular. This is something that we would say, especially in, you know, in the 60s. Someone's woke means they understand what is happening. They know what's going on. But the way that I feel it is being portrayed and people who are against this wokeness, they're still not getting the picture. They're being presented with views that it challenges them too much. And they don't want to, they don't want to be a part of it. To, to take the effort to learn something of another person, uh, why? Why do I have to do that? You're just you're just being woke and you have this woke movement. It's called sharing. It's called, you know, experiencing other per people's background. It's understanding that that person who you see that looks masculine but is asking for female pronouns or, you know, the non-binary pronouns, they, them, it really isn't that hard to do it. And... It's not a revolution for you to do it. It's just called respect. And hey, man, you don't have to, quote unquote, buy into their story. But at the same time, they deserve the same respect as you're expecting. Another great Facebook interaction where this person was like, you have to be careful about, you know, calling someone outside of their their pronouns, you could be sued, you could be arrested. It's like, 
And I think this person was referring to a law in Canada. And I was like, that's not what happens. Because, I don't know, I will research information and go and look at what law they're particularly speaking about. And this has nothing to do with a casual interaction and someone misgendering someone. It's more of a harassment when, say, this person is at their job and their supervisor or co-workers continue to misgender them. That that was the case in Canada, right? Yes. That you're referencing. Yes. And it gets portrayed as you get sued for using the wrong gender, but it was more that the, I think I remember seeing it, the supervisor or the co-workers just would refuse to use it to the point where it was harassment and bullying, where they're like, I've asked you several times to use the right pronoun. That's what you're referencing, what right? Referencing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're going on in this interaction. I was like, well, basically, you just don't want to be a nice person. I mean, that's what it comes down to because somehow someone's identity is really imposing on this person because then they would have to, like, consider that, consider them a person when, in fact, they didn't want to in the first place. And I think that's what we're kind of facing is people are resistant to just being open to other people. And I don't know, it's super easy. You might forget a couple of times and say, oops, I'm sorry. And then you try to correct yourself or you just stop talking to that person. You know, it's just too hard to use their their chosen, you know, pronouns. Then maybe you're just not able to talk to that person at all. Well, we, you obviously know our mutual friend Kelso and I would get their pronoun wrong all the time, but completely innocently and Kelsey was so graceful and so amazing and she, they completely understand and don't get offended by it. Cause I was trying, I wasn't doing it purposefully. It's, it's difficult, you know, like when you're, it's something in your head, you see that person and. No, it's, it's interesting how it kind of, it depends on how you connect with the person. I still have people in my life that when I see them and it's been through long periods of time of not seeing them that, yeah, they, they might use the wrong pronoun. I haven't, we, we haven't been with each other for a long time. We haven't interacted with each other for a long time. So I think that until you find yourself in a place where you're with them all the time, you start to see how they live their life, then it starts to be more of a connection. And I don't fault those people at all because it usually just happens once. And I think once it comes out of that person's mouth, they're always like, oh, damn it. Yeah, that was me all you the know? time. So certain, in the, I do know certain individuals, like when it came to like family, they, they forced them, they would get pissed off when the family couldn't accommodate them for whatever reason. And for my family, I just kind of let it go. One, I am, Quite a few. My parents are in Texas. I'm in California at the time. So to, to talk to them every two weeks or something like that, of course, they're not necessarily going to get it. And I think a lot of their own misconceptions or thought about my transition was because they weren't seeing my life. So my parents come to visit me in California. I'm voice is already cracked full beard happening for them to see people give me male pronouns 
and see how people are interacting with me, I think that's where it kind of closed the loop for them. And luckily, I'm very blessed with the set of parents that I have and that they tried. And I, it wasn't an easy thing. I had many conversations with my mom and it, it wasn't easy for her. And this is, I grew up conservative Christian. My mom's a minister. So a lot of, they went through a lot as far as like my coming out as a lesbian, then to come out as trans. I flipped their world two times, you know, but it was about patience and it was about them seeing me in my element. Proof to my dad is we're at the mall. It's like, all right, well, I got to go to the bathroom. And it wasn't, hmm, which one should I use? I'm presenting as male. I want them to see my life as male. I'm going into the man's bathroom. So to, to see it and to be with that person is one thing. You know, I think for individuals who identify as non-binary, we're just using that pronoun that we were taught not to use for a single person because we're using they and them. So maybe as far as like English teacher's point of view, we know it's okay to use it. <laughs> and we probably have used it in, in different situations. But when an individual themselves claims that as their pronoun, it is, it is an adjustment. And I've also made mistakes as far. It's a really, really interesting point you make, and I, I really, yeah, it helps understand that if you are around that person, then it just becomes normal. So I don't think I've ever told you this. I didn't know you were trans until I saw you do stand-up, and you mentioned it on stage. And I was with Adrian, I was like, wait, what? I, I just thought you were a guy, which you are, you know, but I, like, I never knew you'd transitioned. I didn't know you were transgender at all. And that, to me, I was like, so I've only ever known you as he, him. You know, you're a guy to me. Being around, as I mentioned, Kelso, and they wanted they, and I was absolutely fine with that. But I was still, I think if I'd spent more time with them, then it would have just become natural and it became easier over time that that's just what you use. So that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense about why, like you said as well, why some people just can't get it because they're not around them. And it, it is so interesting what you say. Like, why, why are some people so obtuse about it that they're like, how does that affect them? This is gets me like kind of angry and it would almost be comical if it wasn't hurtful to people. Like, why do you care? Again, like I said earlier, why do you care? What does it matter to you? Like, just have respect for the person. That's what they want. Just do it. Like, I don't understand why so many people get so worked up about it. Why it's so offensive to them? And then that's kind of when I bring it back to, is it just this pious religiousness? But I don't, I still don't even understand why you would care that much either about that. So Anyway, well, let's move on then to you leaving U.S., which I think I asked a while ago. So what then led you to leave the U.S.? You mentioned that you're an American refugee. Why did you leave U.S.? Why did you come to Vietnam? Well, coming to Vietnam, one was a dream, living and working here. My first attempt at that was in 2011. My passport had other plans. So... Losing the passport, the different shenanigans I had to go through to get a new one. Vietnam was like, get out. I was like, okay. Thailand didn't want me either. Wait, go back a step there. What do you mean lost your passport shenanigans weren't allowed in? Yeah, I landed in Vietnam. 
I had everything, and then on my way to Da Nang, I didn't have everything, which my passport. So it was two weeks of kind of living illegally. You'd lost it. I lost it. Eventually got it replaced in Hanoi. That's where I learned I don't really like Hanoi. But they were like, you need to get out of the country. They gave me my new passport, and they were like, you need to get out. Now, I'm sure I could have come back in. But this was the first time I'd ever left the United States on my own. You lost your passport. <laughs> and I lost my passport. It just grew feet and ran away. So it was time to go back. I needed to regroup. Went back to San Francisco. How long had you been away? I'd been away two months. Yeah, two months. I had a lot, a lot of fun traveling through the, through the country. Met some really great people. But... I felt very unsettled not being able to get a job. The purpose was to get settled. At the time I was married, my wife was going to follow me out here, and then we'd start a new life. She, she had stayed in San Francisco in the rent-controlled apartment. Smart. <laughs> so I could go back at that time. But eventually things didn't work out as far as like me and my marriage. So there was divorce that led me not just out of San Francisco, but out of the country, and definitely political issues. I mean, before Trump was elected, I was like, I need to get out. And, you know, they just really were killing black people. They're still killing black people. But I did a particular march in San Francisco for a protest and walking down Market Street, lines of police officers following us and just thinking, I thought this was the 2000s. Why, why are we still doing this? Why are we still doing these marches? Why is the state closely lining this peaceful protest? Things were just too, too ugly for me. I needed to get out. I started questioning, like, why did I transition into being a black man? Like, of all the things to be in this time, I'm very fearful very fearful for my life. And this is even living in San Francisco. That's a, such a good, that's such a deep point. When you said that they are transitioning to a black man, I was like, hey, what are you talking about? You're a black man. And I was like, yeah, but you, it's, it's a different, it's a different set of challenges. Cause even a black woman faces a lot of discrimination, but a black man, is that what you mean? Do you want to just ex like, talk a little bit more about what you meant by that comment that like I, tra I transitioned to a black man? Cause I don't want to try and understand it and then interpret it incorrectly. Well, you are definitely correct as far as like the battles and the issues that black women face. I think living, living as a black woman, you definitely have the space to kind of watch things happen. Um, not that they are missed when it comes to violence or harassment. I just feel like I had an opportunity to, to kind of be in a bubble and observe a lot of things. You hear a lot of things. I worked as an electrician in San Francisco and, you know, some of the foremen or the the general manager of the job, they have some comments as far as like who is working on their team and the fact that your team needs to look diverse. So I was the one black woman on the crew. So it's like black woman and they're just black. So we've we've kind of covered two spots as far as like our diversity on the crew. 
So you, you're you're able to hear these things and see these things. Then transitioning into being a black man, this is where you're. I feel more experiencing certain things. You're not not that you're not watching, but people do speak differently when you're in the room. There's different behavior that happens, different expectations when it comes to being black and male. That, like you said, it brings on new sometimes different challenges that I didn't have to face before. And I remember dating this woman, uh, white Jewish woman, and she was just like, but you're going to be a black man. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that's, that's what I want. And yeah, it is what I want, not considering all the other things that, that come with it. Yeah, I mean that. I'm like kind of like a loss for words because it's just such a interesting perspective to have. Well, to have those two perspectives, and as you know, straight white cisgender male, I only know one perspective, and most people only know one perspective from gender roles. I hadn't ever considered like you see that a female and a male. I know that we're very different. I don't, I know that as a married man, and I know my wife and I see things differently and then she'll explain how she sees it and I'm like oh yeah all right okay yeah so I, I get the concept but you've lived it like what you just explained you you lived that as even taking the race out of it like as a you saw the world as a female saw how you were treated how people talked to you and then saw it as a, a male that's a, a fascinating perspective it's it's very interesting some things I would say when we talk about male privilege, some of those things, like it feels lighter to have that male privilege. At the same time, it's heavy having that male privilege because you just know how people are, are affected by it. There are some things that I enjoy as far as someone asking me directions or someone asking for my opinion about things. I'm more likely to be listened to. Someone's going to consider different options that I might offer them. Whereas speaking to them as a female, it doesn't matter what your idea is. You're just kind of talking. And there will be those few individuals who hear you and will take it into consideration. But more than likely, that's not the way that it goes. So did you ever find yourself, did you notice that you would be mansplained to as a female and then that would stop when you were a male? No, I think I've always, I've personally have always had the mansplaining gene and it is a lot to control it. <laughs> You've been doing the mansplaining. I've been doing it all the time, like even when I was female. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll just call it explaining that you were just explaining. <laughs> Let's go back. <laughs> so what is life in Vietnam like as a trans person? That's a really good question. When I started traveling, I was on these different online forums and talking about travel. And I do remember one guy asking me, so how was your, how was your trans experience while traveling in, in Thailand? And I'm not quote unquote out, but I'm not stealth. Stealth is the idea that no one knows that you're trans. You don't discuss your history. Everyone just knows you as as male. I am very open about 
my trans experience, but I also want them to know that I experience things as a black man. I don't necessarily take into consider into consideration being transgendered. The only time that really comes up is when I'm looking to date someone because then now I need to disclose. If I'm just, you know, doing different types of comedy, I'm meeting people at a bar, going to different events, whether it's a music festival or anything like that, I'm just being me. So the idea of being trans is kind of not an afterthought. It's just something that comes into it when I really feel that this other person needs to know. So when I'm going to be intimate with someone, then I need to disclose that information. So I think as far as like that is concerned, it does kind of stop me as approaching other people. If I find them attractive or interested in talking to them, I will, I will hesitate a lot because I, I know that I'm bringing something different to the table than a lot of, let's say, Vietnamese, because I live in Vietnam, as far as like they're knowledgeable of or even expecting. I'm almost 50. So when it comes to LGBT issues being here in Vietnam, I do communicate with younger people. They are a little bit more on the pulse of what's happening within you know, within their government and their own laws when it comes to like surgeries or name changing, trying to get hormones, which all of these things are about, I would say maybe 20 years behind in the States. I haven't met any older trans people, any, any older people my age, as far as like being Vietnamese, but I have been able to connect with and bond with different younger trans activists, those who are, you know, working closely with government, working closely with individuals on the ground, helping them go through their transition with some type of ease. And that's been an amazing experience. But in general, I'm just a black dude in Vietnam. And it's been, it's been really amazing that once it is revealed, my trans status, it's kind of a non-issue. And I found that I live next door to this Vietnamese family who's adopted me. And within their family, they have a couple of trans-identified individuals. So I'm not, I'm not special, <laughs> sort of say. That's no, that's great. And I, and I know you listened to the episode, so you've, we've had many conversations about this. We've had many guests on that this topic has come up and it, it I think it is something about Vietnam. They are very just accepting that, but you maybe you feel free to correct me on that because I don't experience it or live it. But it, from what I see, and maybe it's because they're Buddhist and they, they have that, that they don't have that Southern Baptist <laughs> religious fanaticism because they are fanatics. Those people, they are extremists. And that's other, another point is they don't label themselves or see themselves as extremists, whereas they are. Do you think then it comes down to that, that that's why Vietnamese people are just so accepting? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily because they're Buddhist, because the family is Catholic. <laughs> but not Southern Baptist. But they're definitely not Southern Baptist. Yeah. I think, 
I think people in Vietnam are able to connect with individuals that these little issues of gender or sexuality is not, I think they recognize that that doesn't make a person because each person that has responded to me is like, that's really brave. And when are we going to meet up for lunch? You know, like, okay, I know this about you. Now let's move on. Oh, that's really cool that you've done this, but well, let's move on. And It's, it's just another thing that makes Vietnam, Vietnam a beautiful country. And I'm constantly reminded how beautiful the people are here. And I, I don't want to be like, what's the world? Like, I'm trying to think of a fancier world than a wanky expat. I don't mean a wanky expat. I don't want to be someone who's like this Western person. It's like, oh, the people here are so lovely and it's such a foreign country. I don't want to be like that. But the people here are beautiful people. And I'm reminded of it constantly in just simple day-to-day -day interactions. And then when we have these conversations, like we are having... It makes it even more beautiful because I obviously don't speak the language. I'm not immersed in the local culture, but I can't imagine, for example, you telling someone that you're trans and then they, that, then them being offended. Has it, have you ever had that? I just can't imagine it. No. I mean, there's one, one incident. I think it is something that made me want to go ahead and be open about being trans and it was an interaction I had with an Australian woman. <laughs> Not Vietnamese. Not Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah. And walked away from this experience thinking that I had like bamboozled her or something like that. So there was kind of an attraction. And I was like, okay, well, if there's this attraction, I think this is a time to disclose. But then it came out. I was like, oh, you've been lying. It's like, I haven't been lying. And I think that like the term come out of the closet it's a place where, you know, generations, people have hid. But the whole, the whole idea of coming out, I don't think for me is appropriate. I like to say, let people in. Because you're, what you see is, is what you get. So if I were to tell you that I was trans, I'm letting you into something. And like, it's like when people get surprised, you know, I'm diabetic. And it's like, well, why were you supposed to know? It's such a great point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a med I mean, to kind of distill it in a way, it's a medical condition. That's kind of how I look at it. Other people have different ways of looking at how they identify as far as trans as something else. I'd say it's a medical condition. Now, before we, we move on to the final questions that we ask everyone, that we, I ask everyone at the end of every episode, I mentioned briefly that you're writing your memoirs and we talked about that. And I remember you mentioning it was a reason why you weren't doing much comedy because you were busy doing your memoirs. Tell us a bit about that. Like, what does it mean? I found it really interesting when you said that because you, you didn't say, oh, I'm writing a book about my life. You're like, I'm writing my memoirs. So what does that mean and how is that going? Okay, it's still going. And it is a big reason why I haven't been out as far as like performing comedy. Comedy writing, I can see how it's useful as far as memoir writing, but I'm kind of just going in a different direction with that. And this particular, because I have quite a few I'm thinking about putting together, but this one is kind of tracking my time from San Francisco into Saigon dealing with divorce and also dealing with being in a 
crazy country, crazy in the sense that it is nothing like anything that I've ever experienced in the West. And just kind of developing a sense of identity outside of, you know, being married. And now I I feel like I've re we've grown the half of my brain that I had lost to marriage. So I feel like a whole person now. So just kind of that experience of living the dream. I came to Vietnam and I was like, I want to live with Vietnamese people. I want to find an old Vietnamese lady to cook for me. And I just want to like, travel around the country, see as much as possible. And I've been able to do that. In the beginning, I wasn't living next, I was living next to a Vietnamese family, but it was in a high rise apartment. No one really spoke to each other. They looked at me weird on the elevator because I was on the 10th floor. Everybody else is like, why are you going that high? To coming into Saigon, finding myself living down a hymn in a tight little community and having this family adopt me and the mom be a mom. Where are you going? It's like, I'm dressed for work. I'm going to work. Are you coming back for lunch? She's like, are you going to eat? If I have eaten, do you want to eat my food? And it's like always feeding me, making sure that I'm okay, asking about me. And I just feel loved. And what a great spot to be in in Vietnam, feeling loved, not really missing out on things. At the same time, I have learned a lot. I have a family in the States. I have a little nephew and I'm drawn to them also. So I've learned this value of what it means to be family, what it means to be connected. So, you know, living in another country changes you. And I want to record those changes, not just where I've been, but what I'm doing and where I hope to go in the future. Like Vietnam has so many stories. During the class, I wrote a small piece about driving. And in the end, I was like, that's its own book, Driving in Vietnam. I think the title should be Surviving These Saigon Streets, Zen and the Art of Motorbike Driving. <laughs> Well, I look forward to it. When do you think you'll be finished? I would like to be finished this summer. I want to, just months ago, I'm listening to a podcast. And I'm thinking, oh, how am I going to get on 7 million bikes? I need to finish this book. I need to finish it so I can get on there. Or will he have a super fan episode? Uh <laughs> so I just put that out there in the universe, and here we are. With did you really think that? I did. No way. So here we have the super fan episode. That's awesome. Well, you're more than a super fan. You're a friend, and it's been amazing to get to know you. You know, it still blows my mind that you have a tattoo. Yeah, but it's so that, small. Yeah, but it, and it, you, when you got it, you were so nonchalant. You're like, yeah, I mean, I got lots of tattoos, but I'm like, <laughs> if anyone's watching the video, you can show the video. This is the logo here. Can you can you see the tattoo? But it's amazing, though. It's cool. Um, yeah, this whole journey for me has been an amazing of doing this podcast. Never ex expected or dreamed that three years later I'd still be doing it. That it would even have a single super fan. Never mind somebody get a tattoo on their arm. So it's fucking, it's really, really cool. So let's finish with the final questions. If you could go anywhere in Vietnam and you have to stay there for a week, where would you go? 
Great question. I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly. Hazang, Hagyang loop. It's supposed to be. I think both of those ways are correct. <laughs> I think so, depending on if you're from the north yeah, or yeah. south. This that crazy, loopy stretch of road in the, in the highlands up north just looks amazing. Have you done it yet? I haven't done it yet. That's one of the reasons why I want to do it. But I love traveling by motorbike in Vietnam. That's the, the first tour I ever had was from Da Nang to Hue with a buddy of mine who does easy rider tours. And they're in major cities all over Vietnam. And just the way to go up into the mountains, see the countryside, meet some of the minority villagers is really, really mind-blowing. Yeah, so I would do, I would do that loop. I think we did, a, I think, a three-day trip, but you could do a week, and it would still not be enough. I, so many people I, I'd known had done it, and just had nothing but like amazing things. And then to do it, it's literally breathtaking. Like there's no words to describe how stunning it is. You just have to do it. And yeah, it, so definitely make, make sure you do that soon. Now we have tourists back. Can you believe it? After the country's been shut for over two years, what a weird time we've just lived through. I'm finally leaving next week, going to Bangkok, <laughs> going across the road basically, but I'm leaving Vietnam for the first time in over two years. I'm terrified. I have Stockholm syndrome for, for living in Vietnam. I don't want to leave these safe borders, but um, I'm leaving finally just for a short trip. But we have tourists coming back. It's so amazing. What advice would you give to a tourist coming to Vietnam? The main thing is to be open be open to the food. There's more than banh mi. There's more than pho. All delicious, but there's you just have so many options and just try it. And if you don't like it, then you've tried it and you can say you don't like it. So many foods that I tell Vietnamese people I don't like, but you've had it. I was like, yeah, but no, it doesn't work. So definitely try that. Definitely learn a few basics as far as like Vietnamese language. Nothing too crazy because it is hard to produce. And if you're just constantly making the wrong pronunciation, you're just not going to go anywhere. Hand signals are good, but hello. Thank you. Toilet. That's good. And luckily you don't have to say anything other than toilet, they will point you in that direction. Luckily, toilet is just toilet. Yeah. And I think the last thing is be open to all the, the chaos that's going on. If you want to cross the street, just jump on a little old lady's back. She'll help you. You'll get over there safe enough. You might be very scared, but everybody gets where they need to go eventually. Oh, I find that a hand down as you walk actually does stop cars. See, I do hand up to like make myself really visible and walk. I don't know if they see that. <laughs> that's because you're really tall and that's really high. That's it takes it takes them out of very far from looking at the road. So I think you should use the hand down. Yeah. The one that makes me laugh the most though is when you see someone on the back of a bike indicate. But the indicator's on. You're like you know, I see the indicator, but it is quite helpful. It I does. think it's helpful because indicators lie. Yeah. Motorbike 
Well, the indicators don't lie. The person using them doesn't use them correctly is normally what happens. The amount of time... Everybody's lying. Yeah, everybody's lying. Everybody's lying. <laughs> so when the hand goes down, that means they're really going... Yeah, that is true. There's the advice for tourists. Don't trust the indicators. Trust the hands. Now, what would your advice be for someone thinking of moving to Vietnam to live? Leave your country. Leave your country in your country. Come to Vietnam expecting to not have anything to do with your country. You might, you might, you know, as an American, there are a few things that I got pop tarts. I got, I got some things, but you know, any kind of like, you just have to leave your Western sensibility behind because you're going to see things that you're like, well, we don't do that in America. No. And you're not in America. I watched a building rise from the ground with people wearing slides. Moving bricks, creating a building. And I'm the whole time I'm like, OSHA would have a field day. Like, how are they doing that? That's that's not okay. But that's that's not for me to say. A lot of things happen in this country where I just have to let it go. I think this is where everybody who lives here is somewhat Buddhist. Because there are just some things where you could just hit your head against the wall. Why is that happening? I don't understand. But you just have to just do it. I once saw a guy using a pneumatic drill to build the foundations of a building barefoot. A pneumatic drill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've just got to let it go, like Elsa says. Now, last time I'm going to ask this question. What to you is the difference between an expat and an immigrant. And if you have been listening to this season's Ion, you've probably heard nine other people answer this question, but what is your answer to that one? I believe that the immigrant is someone who is planning on being a part of the culture and contribute to the community that they're a part of for however long that they're here. Where I think the expat at least for me, it just connotates length of time. It doesn't necessarily mean short or long, but it, the time is going to end. A lot of times it's individuals who are not necessarily wanting to be part of the culture. It's a good place to live. You know, for a lot of people, they feel very free. They're able to make a good salary, but the idea of you know, learning the language, the idea of being within different Vietnamese communities is not necessarily part of their plan on being here. And that's fine. I think, you know, as long as expats understand what it means to be respectful and to just allow for Vietnam to be Vietnam, that's great. Don't try to start any unions here. Like, that's just not how it goes. You can't do that, you can't do that in America either. So <laughs> It's really hard. But at least in America, people are trying. In, in Vietnam, don't try. That's It's not your place to, to set that up. So do you consider yourself an expat or an immigrant? I would say an immigrant. It's always been my desire to be part of Vietnamese society. And, I mean, I've taken some lessons. I can use the language uh, somewhat, I can survive. 
like traveling, but the idea of, of being here means a lot more than just living and working here. Making friends, making connections with people, understanding how they do things, even if it's still mystifying. <laughs> like pneumatic drills and barefoot. So final question, and this one, again, my favorite question. I think I'm going to keep this for season nine. If Vietnam was a person, how would you describe them? Okay. Well, first, I couldn't give the city a gender, but I think it leans way on the feminine side. So there's really great feminine energy. It's really seductive. There are all these things that are pulling you in. I think some of the adjectives I would like to use would be sexy, vibrant, strong, smart, simple, yet mystifying. I think that might be the best description. I like that. Seductive, like Vietnam is seductive. It pulls you in. Every expat you meet is like, I don't really know how I ended up here, but I just came and I couldn't leave. And then what did you say? Sexy, strong. What was the other ones? Uh, smart. Smart. Simple. Yeah, I think that's probably the best one. Awesome. All right. I love it. So, Zion, this has been a pleasure. I'm so glad to have had you on. Thank you so much. Before we go, tell people about your blog. We didn't get a chance to talk about that. I was so, that was so cool. You wrote an article about 7 million bikes and I, I, all this stuff blows me away. I'm like, whoa, that was really cool. Tell people where can they find your blog? What's it about? What can they read about? What can they read? All right. So my blog is www.blacklivingabroad.com. It is a blog about my experiences traveling here in Vietnam, leaving the States, different things I experienced, whether it's driving. I did write a couple of things about comedy and your podcast. Check it out. There's another one. It's called Denang Easy Riders Tam Tam. And this is a good way to connect with some of the easy riders who are doing the tours. Everybody is so pumped about having tourists now, and I'm very excited to kind of also promote him. Awesome. Well, we'll put those links as always in the show notes. So I think like most people don't go in the show notes. Let me know if you do. Send me a message, but I think most people don't. Do you go in the show notes when you're listening to a podcast? Yeah, I don't think many people do. But if you do, go in the show notes, get your phone out, click on the show notes, and we'll have a link in there for both of those things. So awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for listening to this episode of a Vietnam podcast by 7 Million Bites. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to Lewis Wright, who made the 7 Million Bites music and continues to support us in every way. Also to our audio engineer, Luke Digweed, for making sure each episode sounds amazing for you. Also, a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community. Thank you so much. It's amazing to get to know you guys. It's amazing to see how much we're growing. And I look forward to seeing you at our next event. You can join the community today. The link is in the description of the show. You'll get free tickets to 7 Million Bikes events, episodes before anyone else, and extra special bonus content only for you, and invites to special member-only events. You will also obviously be providing massive support so that we can keep sharing people's stories with you on a Vietnam podcast. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And remember, we have seven seasons of stories to share with you. 
So check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too, so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.